curious and creative. Exceptional creativity that is free from the day-to-day distraction. Alison Reed, room number 241. Some people like dogs, others like cats. Some like cats so much they take cat ownership to another level, like Alison Reed, who walked her, her pet leopard, named Mike, around the domain above Hobart. The Beaumara Zoo was established on the Hobart domain in 1923, but financial issues brought about its closure soon after the death of the last known Tasmanian tiger in 1936. The curator's daughter, Alison, was known as the Leopard Girl because she had hand-reared a leopard she named Mike. Mike and Alison regularly went for walks on the domain. In an interview, Alison recalled, I had one of those bulldog races on him because his neck was too thick to take a collar. I would walk him around Soldiers Avenue. A lot of lonely men went on the domain looking for girlfriends. There was about an 18-inch drop and a man didn't see the leopard. He only saw me, and what he saw was a young thing walking along. He was well-dressed, but a nasty-looking fellow, and he sprung lightly down in front of me from the bank, and Mike was crouching low, and he sprang, and well, did this fellow take off. He got a horrible shock. He didn't seem to want to stop and talk then. I pretended I couldn't hold the leopard. I was leaning back, and when this fellow looked back, he turned and started running faster. I never saw him on the domain again. room number 316. The Grand Tasman Bridge that connects the eastern and western shores of the Derwent River was preceded by a much more interesting bridge, one that, in parts, floated. For over a hundred years, Tasmanians had to rely on ferries to cross the wide Derwent River, but in 1936, the 26-year-old chief engineer, Alan W. Knight, started investigating bridge lift spans for, for river traffic. He hit on a brilliant idea, a curved arch of floating concrete pontoons firmly held at each shore and a lift span on the western side to allow river traffic to pass up and down the river. And thus, Hobart's floating bridge was born. 24 concrete pontoons were joined into two half arches and towed into position. The two were joined at midstream under the roadway with a giant steel swivel pin. The grand opening was held on Christmas Eve of 1943. The new bridge brought enormous change to the eastern shore. Housing estates sprang up and new families poured in. Buses and private cars replaced the leisurely half hour of gossip on the ferry. The wide pedestrian path on the bridge became clogged with people fishing and traffic jams were often three miles long. Big seas and the lift span needing to go up to allow a ship through caused all vehicles to grind to a halt. But change was soon in the wind. A real bridge was what the growing city needed. On the 18th of August 1964, Alan Knight observed the construction of the new Tasman Bridge, watching history take a new turn as his ingenious creation was replaced by the modern bridge we still use today. Bounty Butterflies, room number 122. Imagine you're a single, free woman aged between 15 and 30, if you're not one already. Now, imagine travelling to the other side of the world to live in a convict colony. Now, imagine that it's 1833. Yikes. Alfred Ducote's witty cartoon, E-Migration, or A Flight of Fair Game, that appeared in London in 1832, illustrates the plight of one of of the 1,200 single, free, bounty women who sailed to Van Diemen's Land between 1833 and 1836. 
Aged between 15 and 30, they were carefully selected from mostly middle-class backgrounds for their various skills. Ducode represents the women as colourful butterflies, willingly flying through the skies from Britain to populate the new colony, eagerly waiting to trap them on their arrival and men holding nets and crying out, I spies mine and I see the prime one. The older women left behind in the workhouses are depicted expressing the dichotomous views of the English public. One favours female migration, standing with hands on hips, stating, I'd be a butterfly. The second woman, obviously disapproving, wields a broom crying out, Barman, to the departing flock. Under this bounty scheme, Mary Kirk, aged 39, arrived in Launceston in 1835. With her were two single daughters, Anne and Mary Ann, both of whom married well. The reality for many of the bounty women, however, was that they would never see their homes again. They faced a dangerous, lengthy sea voyage, the lack of detailed knowledge of life on the fledgling convict colony, and the disparaging view that colonial men had of the women in the first 20 years as convicts or prostitutes. But despite all the odds stacked against them, most of these adventurous and courageous single free settler women married and became successful Tasmanians. Charles Cumberland, room number 239, a sensitive artistic son of an authoritarian military father. Who's heard that story before? Charles Cumberland, one of Tasmania's most talented and unknown artists, suffered his upbringing long before it became a cliché. One of the most talented artists to live in Tasmania, Charles Cumberland, was born in London in 1828. His father was Lieutenant Colonel Charles Brownlow Cumberland, a distinguished military figure about whom much is known, but unfortunately much less is known of his artistic son. Cumberland Sr. was posted to Tasmania in 1842 and brought his entire family with him, which included Charles Jr. When his father was given command of the saltwater coal mines on the Tasman Peninsula, young Charles was sent to a private school in Richmond. It was here that he first discovered his skill for art. After leaving high school, he moved to Launceston and began working as a practicing artist under the tutelage of John Skinner Prout, one of the colony's most prominent artists. Charles also worked with another promising artist, Francis Simpkins de Weslow, and with Prout, they spent two years at Port Arthur sketching and colouring images of the jail. Charles's best-known piece of art is Hobart from DeWitt and Cromwell Street, Battery Point and Hobart from the corner of the present Sandy Bay Road and St George's Terrace, Battery Point. Other great works are Kangaroo Bay, dated 17th October 1846, and the drawing of a mill on the Cascade Rivulet. It, it's thought that Charles left Tasmania in 1851 or 1852, but it's not known for sure. What is known is that he went to India and worked in civil service. He died in India in 1875. In 1921, Cumberland's son presented the Tasmanian Museum with a collection of his father's previously unseen work, most mentioned above. These works, hidden for 50 years, captured Hobart and surrounds in wonderful detail and are today acclaimed for their historic and artistic merit. Daniel Herbert, room number 127. Think you've got imagination and gumption? 
You might want to measure yourself against Daniel Herbert, a convict stonemason who carved gods and kings into stone when he was supposed to be building a bridge. The iconic Ross Bridge, found in Ross in central Tasmania, was built by convicts and its beautiful stonework was carved carefully in 56 weeks from May 1835 to July 1836 by two convict stonemasons, Daniel Herbert and James Colbeck. As the third oldest bridge still in use in Australia, it is recognised as the most important convict-built bridge in the country due to the intricate carvings decorating the structure. There are 186 carvings in all. Many give impressions of rural activity with stylized wool bales and wheat sheaves. On the keystones and often elsewhere are depictions of animal or human figures. The people include Daniel Herbert's wife, Mary, a self-portrait of Herbert himself, Georgian Georgensen, the eccentric Danish adventurer and convict depicted as a king, Lieutenant Governor George Arthur, caricatured in his top hat, the 16th century Protestant John Calvin, John Hedlam, the hated schoolmaster, William Kermode, a grazier prominent in local affairs and a Tasmanian Aborigine. There is also a Celtic horned god and many monstrous icons including as keystones in the northwest arch a beast wearing a crown and gripping a lamb in its claws it is a mystery as to how two convicts the main one being daniel herbert as overseer working solidly for a year got away with the time-consuming extravagance of carving curious and grotesque images on a controversial bridge that was already over its scheduled completion date by many years Dr. Pugh, room number 132. If you've ever had surgery, you'll know that drowsy feeling that occurs just before the anaesthetic knocks you out. Early settlers in Van Diemen's land didn't know this feeling. They only knew terror and pain until Dr. William Pugh changed all that forever. The ship doctor on the Derwent, Dr. William Russ Pugh, disembarked in Hobart Town, intent on making his way to Launceston to to fulfill two desires. Firstly, he was going to court Miss Cornelia Ann Curtin. Secondly, he was going to find a medical practice opportunity and become a useful member of society. It took Pugh four weeks to reach Launceston, call on Cornelia and join a medical practice. Cornelia expressed her love for him and they married on the 7th of May 1836, six months after meeting as passengers on the Derwent. In order to provide an alternative to the dreadful conditions in the colonial institutions, in 1844, Dr. Pugh set up his own private practice, St. John's Hospital and Self-Supporting Dispensary. In effect, it was an early medical benefit scheme outlined in a prospectus as financed by subscriptions or by donations. Hospital conditions were greatly improved, but surgery was a little better than in the dark, but surgery was a little better than in the dark ages until 1847 when Dr. Pugh picked up on a diagram titled The Apparatus for Rendering Surgical Operations Painless. He constructed a similar apparatus which delivered ether to the patient through a pipe. On the 7th of June 1847 at St. John's Hospital, Pugh became the first person in Australia to use this apparatus. In the first operation, he successfully removed a growth from a girl's jaw while she was unconscious under the influence of ether. She felt no pain and walked home soon after the procedure. Pugh then removed a cataract from a man's eye. Thus, modern surgery had come to the colonies courtesy of Dr. Pugh. Mm. 
Edward Abbott, room number 136. Fancy yourself a bit of a foodie? Meet Tasmania's original gourmand, Mr. Edward Abbott, a noted expert on Tasmanian food who was willing to stand up for his beliefs by belting the Premier with an umbrella. Arriving in Hobart Town in 1815, young Edward worked as a clerk with his father, who was the Deputy Judge Advocate. Although considered eccentric, Edward rose through the ranks of colonial society to magistrate, landowner, owner, politician and newspaper proprietor. He is said to have been the first person to try to raise thylacine cubs. He had a quick temper and once assaulted the Premier of the day with his umbrella. Edward Abbott's laudable, fascinating claim to fame, however, is that in 1864 he published the first Australian cookbook. I am desirous of some reform in the cuisine of some of my countrymen's establishments. What resulted is the English and Australian cookery book, Cookery for the Many, as well as for the Upper 10,000 by an Australian aristologist, which contains recipes for various food and beverages, domestic tips and advice regarding smoking, tea drinking and servants, and 12 pages of advertisements. Edward's book was the first to include recipes using native ingredients. For example, to create slippery bob, one must take kangaroo brains, mix with flour and water into a batter, and cook an emu fat. Edward praised the quality of the fish teeming in the Derwent River and preempted the public's love affair with stripy trumpeter. Trumpeter is good fried and salted and smoked, but the simple boil is by far the most sensible mode of dressing this fish. Fanny Cochrane Smith, room number 234. At 65 years of age, Mrs. Fanny Cochrane Smith was unlikely to have been the oldest performer to ever grace the stage of the historic Theatre Royal Hotel. But for the theatre goers of Hobart, she was the most curious and unique sight. In 1834, Fanny was the first Aboriginal child born at Waibalina, where Tasmanian Aborigines had been exiled after the end of the Black War. She endured great adversity in her childhood and faced devastating changes for her people. As soon as she had her freedom, Fanny began to demonstrate her entrepreneurial flair. After marrying, Fanny established a boarding house in Hobart and with her English Sawyer husband, built a business cutting and selling timber. Fanny would work for days at a time in the bush, splitting shingles and carrying them out herself, at the same time becoming the respected matriarch of a family of 11 children. In 1889, the government recognised Fanny's rights by granting her 300 acres of land. When one of her sons became a Methodist preacher, Fanny donated land on which to build a church. She raised funds and hosted public picnics that attracted patrons from across the south of Tasmania. Fanny's mother... Tanganantara had passed on to her a rich treasury of cultural knowledge of bush foods and medicines, shell necklace and basket making, which Fanny shared with the attendees of her picnics. People were also attracted to Fanny's picnics to hear her perform traditional Aboriginal songs. However, it was as a performer that she established herself as a Hobart celebrity. Fanny trod the boards twice at the Theatre Royal, returning for a final performance in 1903. Horace Watson, a Hobart industrialist, was inspired by her performances and arranged for her songs to be recorded on the newly developed Edison Wax phonograph. Fanny's songs are of world significance, amongst the earliest musical recordings ever created, making her Australia's first Aboriginal recording artist.
Francis Simpkins de Weslow, room number 108, with a name as grand as Francis Simpkinson de Weslow, you'd hope that such a man had qualities as impressive as his title. Luckily, he did. He was one of the finest painters that ever captured the Tasmanian landscape. The son of a well-known barrister, Francis Simpkinson, was born in 1819. At the age of 13, he joined the Royal Navy and began travelling the world, recording astronomical observations, developing his drawing skills and keeping an extensive diary. In 1844, he sailed to Tasmania, where his aunt, Lady Jane Franklin, was the wife of the governor and was given a position at the Magnetic Observatory in Hobart Town. Here, he produced a number of delicate watercolours that were heavily influenced by the local artist John Skinner Prout. The strength of these paintings lies in Simpkinson's lack of preconceived ideas about the colony. Because he was uninfluenced by any clichés about Tasmania, the work he produced was clean, realistic and truer to the Tasmanian landscape than most of his contemporary artists. In 1849, he left Tasmania and sailed for Calcutta, where he undertook surveying duties. He married Emily Wagner and eventually retired as a lieutenant in the Royal Navy. In 1869, he decided to expand his name by taking on that of his grandfather, becoming Francis Simpkinson de Weslow. He and his wife retired on a great estate in Cannes, France, before returning to England just before he died in December 1906. During his lifetime, he was never well known for his paintings, but when he died, his collection of paintings was discovered in a trunk in London. They were sent to the Royal Historic Society in Hobart and were greeted with astonishment and admiration. George Frederick Reed, room number 146. George Reed hated Van Diemen's land when he first visited, but six years later he got over his grumpiness and moved here. Thank God he did. He had a big impact on what, at the time, was a very small place. George Frederick Reed was a sailor, merchant, banker and settler who made vast contributions to the young colony of Van Diemen's land. But the first time he arrived at the Derwent settlement in 1812, he was unimpressed. His cargo was commandeered and his crew were put on rations, which he strongly objected to. He continued his life as a merchant sailor, trading between Hobart Town, Sydney, Batavia, Calcutta and China, before settling permanently in Van Diemen's Land in 1818, after his doctor advised that the southern climate would be good for his asthma. He quickly overcame his initial resentment of the colony and moved his merchant operation to Hobart. In 1819, he was granted 800 acres at Redlands, which was to become one of his key estates, along with many other properties he accrued. Over the next few decades, he played a significant part in the development of the colony and its industries. His interests in a variety of maritime endeavours, particularly trading, helped grow the colony's economy. He farmed high-quality wheat, employed many settlers and ex-convicts, and built many buildings and warehouses around the waterfront. He was also one of the original proprietors of the Bank of Van Diemen's Land and was its managing director from 1827 to 1849. He even served as a magistrate for a while before falling out with Lieutenant Governor George Arthur. He died in 1860 at his final home, Laybourne in Newtown, leaving a flourishing society that he helped create. Gustav 
Weindorfer, room number 225. Sometimes it takes a complete stranger to see the beauty right in front of us. Such was the case with Gustav Dorfer Weindorfer, an Australian-born amateur botanist who first saw the potential of Cradle Mountain. Gustav Weindorfer was born in Spital an der Droe, Austria, in 1874. Sixteen years later, he immigrated to Melbourne. A keen mountaineer, hiker and amateur botanist, he joined the Field Naturalists Club of Victoria in 1903 and went on to lead expeditions into the Victorian Alps, deliver public lectures and send Australian plants to the Museum of Natural History in Vienna. He was naturalised in 1905 and a year later he married a fellow member of the Naturalists Club, Katie Cowell. They moved to Katie's homeland of Tasmania and bought 100 acres near Devonport. Gustav turned out to be as good a farmer as he was a botanist and their property thrived, but his true passion was discovered the first time he climbed the now famous Cradle Mountain. After being deeply moved by the beauty of the mountain, Gustav began dreaming of turning it into a national park equipped with a chalet for bushwalkers. It was a dream he made come true. Built with Gustav's own hands out of King Billy Pine, his chalet, named Waldenheim, opened in 1912 and became an instant success and popular resort. Carved onto the wall were the words, This is Waldenheim, where there is no time and nothing matters. Gustav died in 1932, 10 years after a region spanning 158,000 acres from Cradle Mountain to Lake St. Clair was proclaimed a reserve, largely due to his efforts. He was buried in Cradle Valley and Waldenheim was added to the National Park. Henry Constantini, room number 312. If you're caught breaking the law and sent to the other side of the world as punishment, you'd think that you would have learned your lesson. Not Henry Constantini, he journeyed all the way home only to be sent back again. Born as Charles Henry Theodore Constantini in France in 1803, but known simply as Henry Constantini, he moved to London early in life. In 1822, he was arrested for forgery and sent to Bathurst in New South Wales. He behaved well, quickly obtained a pardon and became a ship's surgeon, although it's unclear where he learned his medical skills. Back in London in 1827, he was arrested again, this time for robbery. He was transported to Van Diemen's Land, where his behaviour was, this time, not so good. He was described as very troublesome and sent to the brutal Macquarie Harbour penal settlement, where he began sketching and painting the beautiful surrounds of the harsh region. The commander of the station took notice and commended his work to the governor, which led to Constantini being transferred to the slightly less brutal station at Port Arthur. Here he worked as an assistant surgeon and kept up his painting. Despite a few more acts of insubordination, one of which resulted in Constantini receiving 50 lashes, he eventually earned his freedom. He became the unofficial surgeon to the settlement and also advertised his services as a portrait and landscape painter. One of his most famous works is a portrait of William Buckley, an escaped convict who spent decades living with an Aboriginal tribe. Henry Gritton, room number 113. The highly regarded painter, Henry Gritton, travelled the world as a professional painter before settling in Launceston after a brief stint as a gold prospector. 
One of the finest artists to call Tasmania home, Henry Gritton was born in London in 1818. His artistic skills were apparent at an early age and he became a professional painter as a young man. He was very prolific, focusing mostly on interpretive landscapes and exhibited at the prestigious Royal Academy. In 1848, he moved to New York and then on to Brooklyn, where he again exhibited this time at the American Art Union and the National Academy of Design. Two years later, he took a break from his art career and moved to Bendigo to work as a gold panner. Like many other prospectors, this didn't work out for him, so he started painting again and helped found the Victorian Academy of Arts. He kept moving, first to Sydney and then down to Tasmania, where he settled in Campbelltown. He finally found a permanent home in Launceston where he spent the rest of his life working as a professional painter, artist and photographer. One of his most famous paintings is View of Hobart, 1857, which now hangs in the National Library of Australia. Other notable works include landscapes of Sydney, Sydney Harbour, Melbourne and the Melbourne Botanical Gardens. Gritton never received fame or wealth during his lifetime, dying in Launceston in 1853, leaving his family destitute. Henry Mundy, room number 243. Being a wealthy, well-known and successful artist is great. That is, if you can avoid poisoning yourself like poor old Henry Mundy. Born in London in 1798, Henry Mundy quickly showed his artistic talent with the sketches he drew as a student. He developed his skills and eventually exhibited a collection of oil paintings at the British Institute in 1831. In the same year, he immigrated to Tasmania, where he'd been offered a teaching job at a private school for young ladies. While working as a teacher, he continued to paint regularly and eventually left his job in 1838 to paint full-time. He painted landscapes and portraits and was commissioned to paint portraits of some of the leading citizens of the young colony, including Thomas Williams, Thomas Archer and Mrs. Reby. For an unknown reason, he refused to sign his work. In 1840, he painted four scenes of the Norfolk Plains before moving to Hobart Town. Here, the local paper declared him a justly celebrated artist with excellent taste and professional ability. Eventually, he retired and took his family and servants to live on the east coast at Seaford. But he struggled to prosper on the coast and took to frequently visiting the capital. On these trips, he became an alcoholic, and in 1848, he died after accidentally drinking a tumbler full of laudanum. These days, you can find some of his paintings in the Queen Victoria Museum in Launceston and the Tasmanian Museum and Art Gallery in Hobart. Henry Savary, room number 208. It's not every day you meet a famous author, much less the author of the first novel ever published in Australia. But Henry Savary was much more than just a writer. He was also a master forger, crook, satirist and convict. Henry Savary was sentenced to hang for passing forged bills of exchange while in business, but the day before he was to be sent to the gallows, his sentence was commuted to transportation to Van Diemen's Land for life. On his arrival in Hobart Town in December 1825, Henry was employed as a clerk in the Colonial Secretary's office. In 1828, Henry's wife, Eliza, and their son sailed to Hobart. On her arrival, Eliza was quickly disillusioned as to her husband's position in the colony. He was still a convict without a ticket of leave and was under threat of imprisonment for debt. 
A week after Eliza's arrival, Henry attempted suicide by cutting his own throat. Henry was in prison and Eliza and their son returned to England. During the 15 months of serving time, Henry wrote sketches of Hobart life for the Colonial Times under the title of The Hermit in Van Diemen's Land. It was Australia's first extensive work of political satire and social observation. After his release, Henry wrote Quintus Servanton, the first novel ever published in Australia. Over the next five years, Henry was involved with several legal actions brought either by or against him, all involving money. By 1838, he had received a conditional pardon and was operating a farm, but Henry was arrested again in September 1840 for once again committing forgery. He was sentenced to Port Arthur for life. John Glover, room number 101. If you've ever gazed at a gorgeous watercolour painting of colonial Van Diemen's land, chances are it was a replica, or an original if you're lucky, of a John Glover masterpiece. The 18th of February 1831 was an auspicious and challenging occasion for renowned English classical landscape artist John Glover. When he arrived at the mouth of the Tamar River in northern Van Diemen's land, it was his 64th birthday and before him was a new, creative and impetuous, impetuous in topography, light and colour. He was not to know that the paintings he would produce on this island would prove to be some of his most famous and influential work and cement his place in history as the finest painter to ever capture the unique Tasmanian landscape. A year after their arrival, John and his family were granted land on the plains and northern slopes of Ben Lomond. John presided over every acre, built a two-story Georgian house, planted English shrubs and introduced English songbirds. In his 1835 painting, A View of the Artist's House and Garden, Mills Plains, he shows the fruits of his toil. In January 1832, he entered Hobart Town in triumph with the last of the wild Oyster Bay and Big River Tribes people. Some of them danced and swam, providing him with subjects to record for later paintings. Glover had an innocent, accepting view of the capture and imprisonment of the Aboriginal people. His painting, A Corroboree of Natives in Mills Plains, reveals his sympathy for their demise. A giant gum tree, silhouetted against the sky, is bent and dying as the sun sinks and so becomes a metaphor for the fate of the ancient race. The figures are dwarfed beneath the gum and appear almost to be ghosts of a former vibrant civilization. John Woodcock Graves, room number 218. Life was hard for John Woodcock Graves. On the one hand, he was talented and intelligent and held a variety of interesting jobs throughout his time in Van Diemen's Land. On the other, he was more or less insane. The author of the old English ditty, Die Ken John Peel, John Woodcock Graves, arrived in Van Diemen's Land in 1834 with his wife, Abigail, and three of their children as assisted immigrants. They had 10 pounds to their name. Highly gifted but unstable and without determination, Graves was a cause of embarrassment and suffering to his wife and young family, who he deserted for long periods in his lust for change and for fresh scenes. He applied for and tried various occupations, including lighthouse keeper on South Bruny Island, reporter on the coal mines at Port Arthur, lithographer, developer of a slate quarry at Davy River, 
painter of portraits and heraldic devices, repairer, painter and varnisher of carriages, plumber, glazier and japanning. In 1842, he was detained at the asylum at New Norfolk for apparent insanity, but escaped. Offering to paint the outer walls of the hospital, he was issued with paint, brushes, and a ladder. Using the ladder, he climbed over the wall and disappeared. In May 1934, an article was published in called Beck, Cumberland, England, on the opening of a memorial to John Woodcock Graves. It concluded, Had Graves lived in this century, his mental struggles might have been less. The know thyself has been made easier by modern science. He lived and suffered. By his suffering, the lives of others may be made happier today. King Diego Bernacci, room number 306. Diego Bernacci, the King of Mariah transformed a small island with a brutal past into a thriving community and prosperous broom town, for a little while anyway. Angelo Giulio Diego Bernacci, a prosperous Spanish-Italian raw silk merchant from England, believed that the climate of Tasmania would be found admirably adaptable for the propagation of the silkworm. He arrived in Tasmania in 1884 with his wife Barb and their three children, Having made their way to Mariah Island, they moved into the ruins of a house from the convict period at Darlington. Although many colonists were suspicious of the charming, persuasive Italian, Diego was granted a Mariah Island lease from the 1st of January 1885 for 10 years at one shilling a year. Diego's enthusiasm inspired his workmen in their efforts to transform the old convict settlement. In 1886, Diego invited parliamentarians to inspect the land. They were welcomed with an Italian string band, fireworks, brilliant Chinese and Venetian lanterns, and champagne banquets. By the end of 1888, Darlington had been renamed San Diego and was a boom town with a population of more than 250 people. The Mariah Island Company established a coffee palace and hotel, initiated plans to increase wine production and agriculture, utilized marble and limestone deposits to establish a Portland cement works and a factory to make slippers out of bull kelp. Mariah Island was dubbed the Ceylon of Australasia and a Tasmanian Eden, but it was not to last. By the early 1890s, the colony was was suffering a depression. After the departure of King Diego, San Diego reverted to its original name and comparative obscurity. Nud Gilmudin Bull, room number 103. Poor, poor Nud Bull, a highly talented chap from Norway, he made the mistake of forging a bill in London. For his troubles, he was sent to Australia as a convict. Nud Gilmudin Bull was a talented Norwegian artist who suffered a wicked twist of fate. Born in Norway, he studied art in his home country, Denmark and Germany. But while visiting London, he was caught forging a monetary note and was subject to the English justice system. He was sentenced to 14 years transportation on the remote penal settlement of Norfolk Island. But this didn't dampen his love for art. While being transported, he painted The Wreck of the Waterloo, which later sold its other beasts for tens of thousands of pounds. In 1847, he was transferred to Tasmania, where he bounced between different convict stations and somehow maintained his artistic practice. 
After years of good behaviour, he was sent to teach at a girls' seminary. Just as things were looking up for Nudd, he absconded, escaping to Melbourne under a false name where he was recognised and sent back to Hobart Town as a runaway. He finally earned his ticket of leave in 1852 and became a full-time painter, producing many famous works that depicted early colonial life, some of which were sent to London to encourage public migration to Tasmania. Other examples of his art can be found today in the Tasmanian Museum and Art Gallery. In 1856, he moved to New South Wales, where he died in 1889. Lady Jane Franklin, room number 124. Back in the 19th century, many women were relegated to the to live in their husband's shadows, but not our Lady Jane. When her husband John was made Lieutenant Governor, she became a champion of colony culture. Jane was a strong-minded, intelligent, ambitious and adventurous English lady of 36 when she married the kindly, gentle hero of Arctic exploration, Captain John Franklin. Soon after their marriage, John was knighted and she became Lady Jane. When the position of Lieutenant Governor of Van Diemen's Land came up in 1836, Lady Jane considered it an ideal posting for the Franklin family and encouraged her husband to take the job. In the seven years they presided at Government House, she initiated many projects and activities, including putting a bounty on snakes, donating farms to poor families, promoting intellectual pursuits, instigating the first Hobart regatta, commencing the building of the Royal Botanical Gardens, championing the education of children, forming the Tasmanian Natural History Society and adopting two Indigenous children, albeit with disastrous results. To enable her vision of cultural and intellectual development in the infant colony, Lady Jane wanted to see and participate in everything. She descended into, into the mines at Port Arthur, visited the boys at the Point Pure prison and the women in the female factory, climbed to the summit of Mount Wellington and traversed Tasmania's wild west coast. This vital lady also conformed to the ideals of the day by being a charming governor's wife, hosting balls, receptions and dinners, and patronising charities and community activities. Louisa Ann Meredith, room number 221. Pay some respect to Louisa Ann Meredith. After all, she made huge contributions to the understanding of flora and fauna in early Australia, as well as being an accomplished writer, artist, farmer and champion of the natural world. Louisa Ann Twomley, a refined, educated, talented and precocious young lady, had her first book of poems and illustrations published in London in 1835. Three years later, her cousin, Charles Meredith, arrived in England from Van Diemen's Land. The following year, they married and sailed to the new colonies. Although she came to Australia intending to stay only five years, Louisa spent the rest of her life here. Carrying on under difficulties, her literary and artistic career blossomed and contributed significantly to the understanding of Australia, its landscape, its people and its emergent identity in the Victorian British imagination. Following a failed venture in New South Wales, Louisa, Charles and their newborn son transferred to the east coast of Van Diemen's Land to Riversdale, north of Swansea. Despite pioneering hardships, failed ventures, deaths of children, isolated and problems, isolation and problems with convict servants, 
Louisa continued to write and exhibit her sketches and paintings of colonial life and bush flora and fauna. Since farming had proved unprofitable for them, Louisa suggested to Charles that he should enter politics. He successfully entered Parliament and with Louisa's prompting, he introduced a bill for the protection of the black swans, which were under threat of extinction. Lucilia de la Constantine. The term delusions of grandeur might have been invented to describe Harriet Willington or Lucilia de la Constantine as she preferred to be known. A thief and convict with one or two screws loose, she's one of the most curious and creative people you'll meet in Mac 1. Room number 141. Harriet Willington was an Irish fantasist who had grandiose ideas about her station in life. She first came to the attention of the authorities in Devon in the 1840s for vagrancy and stealing a coat and boots. When arrested, she gave the impressive name of Lucilia de la Constantine. Lucilia was transported to Van Diemen's land. She gained work as a governess at Government House. No doubt her smatterings of French, her presentation and her confident persona had assisted her in acquiring the position, where she quickly escaped by feigning hallucinations. She was soon caught and sent to the Ross Female Factory to serve a term of six months hard labour, where she spent most of her time wandering into homes of the affluent residents of the colony to steal works of art and then enduring periods of detention in the female factories. In 1849, an ex-convict blacksmith, William Barker, applied to marry her at Campbelltown. A red-headed Yorkshireman with a predilection for brothels and robbery, he was outdone by Lucilia, who, soon after their marriage, was sent to the Launceston female factory for stealing. She gave birth to a daughter, but unfortunately did not take the baby seriously as she accumulated myriad charges and incarcerations for stealing, disorderly contact, and having tobacco and pipes. Eventually, she ended up in Melbourne jail, where she died in 1884 under the name Lucy Taylor. Marie-Louise Girardin, room number 244. Disguised as a man, Marie-Louise Girardin became the first European woman to walk on Van Diemen's land, although not without a few rumours following her. The first European woman to visit Van Diemen's land and meet the local inhabitants, the Liliquini or Pangeringi people at Church Bay was probably Marie-Louise Victoire Girardin on April the 23rd, 1792. During the time of the French Revolution, she is purported to have fled Versailles in disgrace and disguised herself as Louis Girardin, a man. Small, plain and youthful in appearance, Louis presented a letter of introduction to Mme Le Frenois de Yarville, the widowed sister of Jean Mc. Michel Juan de Kermadec, captain of L'Esperance. Juan de Kermadec ensured that Girardin was duly appointed commis or steward aboard La Recherche under the command of Vice Admiral Bruni de Stentrocristo. La Recherche and L'Esperance sailed from Brest to search for a missing Frenchman, La Perouse and made some of the earliest ethnographic observations of the Aboriginal people of Van Diemen's Land. 
During the course of the expedition, rumours abounded about her and she was mercilessly teased by some crew members, defending herself with a knife when Ange Raoul demanded satisfaction. The expedition returned to the Rechurch Bay area between the 21st of January and the 27th of February, 1793. The indigenous locals were intrigued at the absence of females from the group. The cynical and forthright journalist on L'Esperance, Jacques Malot, Auguste Lamotte du Portail, commented in a letter that had the Aborigines examined the steward of La Rechurch, they would have come across what they wished to find. Nan Chauncey, room number 223. If you grow up in the bush, what's the best way to turn your experiences into income? Well, if you were like Nan Chauncey, you'd draw on your experiences and write celebrated children's books. Nansen Beryl Nan Masterman was 12 years old when she arrived in Tasmania with her parents and siblings. In 1914, her family bought land at Baghdad to start an apple orchard. The experience of clearing the land and building a slab hut made an enormous impression on Nan as she explored the caves, creek and wildlife of the area. Nan married Helmut Anton Rosenfeld in 1938. In 1949, the couple changed their family name to Chauncey, the surname of Nan's paternal grandmother, to avoid the stigma attached to German names at the time. Nan and Anton purchased 1,000 acres of dry bushland near Baghdad, and in July 1946, the property was officially declared Chauncey Vale Wildlife Sanctuary. Nan's books broke new ground in children's writing in Australia. She pioneered realistic novels and an interest in conservation that redefined the tone and style of, a ch- of children's literature. Her first novel, They Found a Cave, was a revolutionary novel for children in the, conserva- in the conservative 1940s and 1950s because Nan did not add any words of criticism of the children for going bush, for living rough, for defying adults or for walking out on parents who treat them badly. It has respect for the courage and ingenuity of young people. In 1962, a colour film version of They Found a Cave was released at a time when films adapted from Australian children's books of the period were few and far between. Robert Clifford, room number 230. Introducing Dr. Robert Clifford, whose quick thinking, hard work and generosity not only helped Hobart get through a catastrophic disaster, but led to the establishment of one of Tasmania's greatest and most innovative exporters. When a cargo ship hit two pylons of the Tasman Bridge in 1975, it caused a section of the bridge to crash into the Derwent River. By 6am, Bob Clifford and his bush ranger ferries were transporting commuters between the two shores on boats. Initially, Bob offered his services free of charge, operating around the clock to carry shift workers and people out late. When Bob introduced his regular charge, 50 cents return, the Transportation Commission insisted he harbour it. Bob refused and a standoff ensued. The Premier turned up on the wharf and told Bob, you can charge whatever you want, you're doing a great job. Bob put the fair money towards building new ferry terminals and boats. We didn't make money, but we did pay off another three boats, he said. This was how his shipbuilding company, Incat, was born. Once the bridge reopened nearly three years later, Bob sold his fleet to tour operators in northern Queensland. Under Bob's direction, Incat 
has built a culture of innovation. The company was the first to develop wave-piercing catamarans and the high-speed car ferry, pioneering the modern aluminium shipbuilding industry along the way. It has won numerous international awards and dominates the Hales Trophy, an award for the fastest transatlantic crossing by a passenger ship. Robin Moore, room number 213. You'd be hard pressed to find an Australian who hasn't heard Robin Moore's voice, but not many of them would know her name. Born in Hobart in 1950, Robin Moore would go on to become one of the most beloved voices in Australia, most notably for her, uh, her iconic role as the voice of Blinky Bill. But before all that happened, she was a country girl, spending the first few years of her life in the isolation of sheep and cattle stations. It was during her early years that Robin's love affair with the wireless sound and the spoken word was embedded. She was head prefect at Ogilvy High School in 1965 and graduated in 1972 to become a primary school teacher. In 1976, she and her husband moved to Sydney where Robin established herself as a cross-platform performer, doing voice work, presenting the news and acting in comedy sketches and on television. In 1992, she was cast as the voice of the beloved Blinky Bill, which cemented her role as an Australian icon. During this period, she also created all the female voices in How Green Was My Cactus, Australia's longest-running radio show, which celebrated 30 years on air in 2016. In 1992, she moved back home to Hobart with her husband and two sons so the boys could immerse themselves in the Tasmanian way of life. Robin is one of Australia's most in-demand speakers and, along with her professional work, she has dedicated much of her life to helping others. She has been National Patron and Volunteer Wish Granter with Make-A-Wish Australia for 25 years and the 2016 International Make-A-Wish Volunteer and Ambassador for the Australia Day Council, Dragons Abreast Australia and the Australian Childhood Foundation as well as a friend of many other charities. Rolf Voss, room number 237. After fighting the Nazis in the Dutch resistance, Rolf Voss went looking for a real challenge, selling groceries to Tasmanians. Luckily, he was more than up to it. Rolf Voss had been involved in the Dutch resistance during World War II. With his friend Engel Spikes, Rolf, his wife Mep, and their children immigrated to Tasmania in 1951. Rolf opened various shops and found success by transforming a Launceston milk bar into Northern Tasmania's first self-service grocery store. Promotional campaigns, good treatment of staff and low prices brought great success and he opened new supermarkets throughout Northern Tasmania, eventually 13, employing 500 people by 1982. One of his novel advertising campaigns involved painting footprints on the footpaths in Launceston late at night. He then placed anonymous advertisements in the newspaper asking, where did the footprints lead? Soon the city was buzzing, and with a large advertisement in the Examiner newspaper, Rolf admitted to his crime by announcing all the footprints lead to Rolf Voss's monster supermarket sale. Soon after, the Launceston City Council sent him a letter telling him that it was illegal 
and that he must immediately clean them off. Rolf didn't mind. His campaign had already been a huge success. Rolf sold his supermarket chain to Woolworths to focus on building Grindelwald, a Swiss village built around two artificial lakes. He is remembered for claiming, I have never had a boring moment in my whole life. There was always something to do or something to think of. I'm encouraged when people say that I can't, that it cannot be done. If people tell me that, then I think that it is time to show them. Thomas Bock, room number 118. When life gives you lemons, make lemonade. That's what Thomas Bock did when he was sentenced to a living hell on Van Diemen's land. The first half of Thomas Bock's life was honest and successful. He was born into a respectable family in Warwickshire in 1790, and as an adult, he became an engraver and painter. He won a silver medal from the Society of Arts and Commerce for his engraving, married and had five children. Life was looking good. But then, in 1823, his life was turned upside down when he was found guilty of supplying drugs to a young lady in order to assist her out of a family predicament. As punishment, he was transported to Van Diemen's Land for 14 years. In later years, he would claim he was transported for forgery. Once he arrived, he was lucky enough to have his artistic skills recognised by the wife of the governor, Sir John Franklin. This helped shelter him from many of the horrors that other convicts faced. In 1832, he was pardoned and started working for the Van Diemen's Land Bank as an engraver. After becoming successful in this field once again, he bought a house in Campbell Street and became a full-time artist. His patron, Lady Jane, commissioned him to paint portraits of Aboriginal Tasmanians, some of which can still be viewed today in the Tasmanian Museum and Art Gallery. He was also regularly commissioned to paint portraits of private citizens. In 1843, he visited Sydney to exhibit some of his work. Two years later, he was the star of the first major exhibition in Hobart Town. His health then declined, but he continued painting right up until his death in 1855. Walter George Arthur, room number 202. A pioneering author who started life as an orphan of war, grew up tough on the city streets working as a petty thief and pickpocket, sailed the southern oceans in search of riches and adventure, and convinced a queen to change the fate of his people. At the time of his birth, around 1820, the Tasmanian frontier was a place of conflict and violence. Standing in the way of the British advance were Tasmanian Aboriginal warriors, defending their country with their lives. Among these resistance fighters were the parents of a small boy. After the Black War was over, the orphaned boy was taken in by settlers and given the name Friday. Running away from the farm, he spent time on the streets of Launceston, picking pockets for a living. He was soon sent to orphan school and then to Flinders Island, where Aborigines were to be imprisoned for the rest of their lives. All this was about to change. In 1837, under a new name, Walter George Arthur began writing Australia's first Aboriginal newspaper. Nine years later, he petitioned Queen Victoria on the fate of his people, reminding the sovereign that a treaty had been made between Aborigines and the governor, that we have not lost from our minds since, and we have made our part of it good. As a result, the Queen ordered that Waibalina be clothed and the Aboriginal people held there were allowed to return to mainland Tasmania. He won His freedom won, Walter signed up to the whaling ship Sussex, 
traveling across the South Pacific in search of his fortune. He died in a boating accident in 1861, ending a short life that brought literature and colonial politics together in a way that helped ensure the survival of Tasmanian Aborigines as a free people.